Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to A Whole Life Later, a podcast where we talk about everything wrongful convictions. I'm your host, Kylie, and with me is my co-host, Rory. Hi. So today... In continuation of our Guy Palmeret mini-series, we are talking about genetic genealogy, which was the tool that was used to quote-unquote solve the murder, according to the police. And so we're going to be talking about how genealogy works, what kind of where it came to be, a couple other cases that have used it, and sort of some of the problems or misconceptions around genetic genealogy. So Rory, when had you first heard about genetic genealogy? That's a good question. I'd say probably uh, I took a forensics class back in my, uh, during my undergrad and yeah, that's about it. You make that sound like it was such a long time ago when you literally just finished. Well, it is correct. It is in the past tense that my undergrad has happened because I am now an old man. At 21 years old, you are an old man. Fabulous. Love that for you. Okay, so genetic genealogy kind of came to be around 2017. So in context, a genetic genealogist So this was something that was actually used before, of course, not for crime. It was used to find people's long-lost relatives and, you know, just kind of plot out your family tree and your history. Ancestry. Exactly. So a genetic genealogist, Barbara Ray Venter, got a call from a California detective who had found some old DNA evidence and was trying to reopen the case of the Golden State Killer, which you should know, but if you don't, was a very, very, very bad person, a serial rapist and murderer who terrorized California from 1970 to, or the 1970s to the 1980s. Just a horrible person. And so Barbara Raventer took the DNA samples and like compared them to a family tree kind of thing. So in genetics, a parent and a child or two siblings share 50% of their DNA and grandparents and grandchildren share 25% of their DNA. So even distant relatives share small portions of DNA. So this allows genetic testing companies in, you know, in the world, such as like Ancestry or 23andMe, to kind of see how distantly related people are related if they submit two samples. And of course, you know 
you should know that anyone can upload these. Um, so Ray Venter was able to find profiles that looked to be distant cousins of the suspects and used that information to move backwards and find their great-grandparents. So doing that, she was able to trace their descendants down the line and gave the detective na the names of three brothers. And so the police went and retrieved DNA from a cigarette discarded by one of the brothers, and it matched the sample. So on the 24th of April, 2018, the police arrested Joseph D'Angelo in the first criminal case, which was solved using this technique. So let's talk a little bit more about how it works. Are you, do you, are you familiar with like the biology and stuff, Rory? Vaguely. Again, you know, it was so long ago that I took this class. Yeah. Okay. So the way it works is you're going to have DNA from either the victim or the perpetrator, and the extracted DNA is going to be replicated over and over again, so it can be accurately analyzed. And this is known as polymerase chain reaction amplification, or PCR. And so this provides a DNA profile of the victim or the perpetrator. Of course, it would only provide the profile for the victim if we're looking at human remains that can't be identified. And so with genetic genealogy, this DNA profile is compared to a set of voluntary participants or to millions of DNA samples on file with genealogy websites, such as GEDmatch23andMe or Ancestry.com. And the profiles that return partial matches are then studied for genetic similarly, simil similarities. similarities. Yeah, thank you. And so, like, the people who generally are found are, like, third, fourth, even fifth cousins. So, you know, like, the distant, distant relatives. And so, fun fact, not many people actually know any relatives more distant than their second cousins. Do you know anyone di more distant than your second cousins? I think maybe. How, okay, how does it work again? Okay, so your cousins are your, like, aunt and uncle's kids. Mm-hmm. Your second cousins are your parents' cousins. Okay. And then it just keeps, like, going from there. I think I just know second cousins, though. Okay. See, so I know pretty far back because my mother has a huge-ass family, and it gets to the point where you're, like, hanging out with everyone, and you're like, how are we related to this person again? Like, and it gets confusing because, like, we just call everyone aunt and uncle right? Mm -hmm. Even if they're your cousin, it's just everybody does it. It's yeah. But these family histories are able to build for these matches. So common relatives become found. And then the final result is a complete family tree, which then the investigators go through and like, you know, get rid of whoever they think could not be capable of this crime or like people who had died, you know, people who were too young, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it should be noted that these companies can actually or don't typically share the DNA information with law enforcement unless they are compelled to by a court order. So that is a little reassuring when it comes to privacy, except for the fact that they technically own your DNA after you send it to them, just like an FYI, right? So it's usually a slob of saliva. And they keep that, just so you know, in case you were, like, ever worried about sending your DNA in, just, like, not a good idea. And so, in the case of our Calvin Hoover, they used a genetic tree process called a dendrograph, and it took the detective six months to do. 
which is like absolutely nuts. And he said they were about 76 to 80% sure on a couple people, but it was like never good enough that they could actually use it. And then finally, he found a second cousin once removed, which I think is what they call a third or fourth cousin. It gets very confusing. That led to Calvin Hoover. And luckily for them, the DNA sample had been taken from Hoover when he died by suicide in 2019 or 2015. And so they were able to compare that DNA to the semen found on Christine Jessup's clothes. And it was 100% conclusive, which when something is 100% conclusive, it's not easy to poke holes in. And that's usually quite rare, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, especially like when you look at family trees and in unsolved cases, it is quite rare to get such a certain result, right? Because that's why they're unsolved. Mm -hmm. And so Uh, I did have one question. Yeah. You mentioned the six months thing being a long time. Don't most forensic procedures take forever, really? Or, you know, yeah, that is correct. But it does seem like a long time to be like sitting at your computer and having Mm -hmm. to like put names together, right? Yeah. Just like that sounds like a pain in the ass to me. (laughs) Yeah, not my ideal job. Mm -hmm. And so, so we live in British Columbia, Rory and I, and BC's privacy laws don't actually cover technological advances like genealogy. So this kind of, you know, makes a bit of a gray area for the use of genetic genealogy. And, right, like, the suspects didn't surrender their DNA, but their relatives did on a consumer website for it. It just, there's some sketchy areas that people are a little concerned about, but it should be noted that another case that was used to solve this was the case of two young people from Saanich, BC, which is near Victoria, Tanya von Kylenborg and Jay Cook. She was 18, he was 20, and they were murdered in near Seattle. And it was like something like 27 years before they were, their crime was solved. And it was used with a very well-known company called Parabon Nanolabs. And they, as you look more into genealogy... Why do they already sound like just the antagonist in the movie? Right? Like, that's a really, like, not good name. But they are very well known in the genealogy community, and there are people who are very anti-Parabon nanolabs, because the other thing they do is use DNA recovered from crime scenes to create sketches of what they think the person will look like. So they literally will read the DNA and have a program that makes a picture of what these people look like. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. I know I've seen a lot of stuff with that where they do it with like, you know, old historical figures. Like this is what Cleopatra would have really looked like. Yeah. But like with suspects, that's a little, Mm -hmm. you know, could easily in like implicate the wrong person. And another article I read was talking about how somebody was arrested for a murder because his DNA got mixed up with one of his cousins and it was just like this whole mess. Mm, okay. Like, yeah, not the best. So let's talk about some of the aspects of uh, genealogy that aren't that well understood. So a concern that has been raised is the participation of genetic genealogy databases is like the equivalent of ratting out one's criminal relatives, which 
I think is really funny. But at the same time, like, it should be noted that this is only used to generate leads, right? Like, you're Everyone's not grandma on Ancestry.com is about to solve the world's unsolved murders. <laughs> I love that. You go, grandma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's not like you're purposely submitting your DNA and be like, oh, creepy Uncle Stan, right? Like, oh my god, I feel really bad. I have an Uncle Stan. Just kidding. Let's go creepy Uncle John. No, I have an Uncle John too. Just kidding. Um, this is where we come back to where you were like, I have a massive family. Yeah, literally. Okay, I definitely don't have a creepy Uncle George. So I okay. apologize if your name is George, but you are now creepy Uncle George. And so another like misconception is that it involves collecting and testing DNA samples from so many innocent people that wouldn't have been if it wasn't used. And it's like, that's, that's no, because they collect DNA from all suspects, like, you know, and DNA collection always happens voluntarily, meaning there is consent from the donor. Is this by the police or by the... Yes, involuntarily, which, you know, without the consent, but pursues a warrant or is authorized. And then involuntarily, which is without the knowledge of the donor, but it's based on the collection of the abandoned DNA, right? So Mm -hmm. all three of those examples are lawful, because it furthers the investigation. Yeah. And so what do you think, Rory? What's your thoughts on genetic genealogy? Wasn't it? I also thought there was a thing where you can only tie it to the matrilineal line. Or am I getting that confused with something else? So that would be specifically if there was mitochondrial DNA. Because mm, you get your mitochondria from your mother. But mm-hmm. if there was enough, because it's all the X's and Y's and the chromosomes and then as well as like the DNA structure with the four, I want to, like the A, T, G, C, like, yeah. It's... Okay, got it. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's, I, I find the process super interesting. Yeah. But how per se the courts interact with it, I think it'll be very interesting when I don't really know where I fall on it yet. Yeah. I think you use the term to further the investigation earlier as a justification for it, which I think is a very broad parameter to set. Because, you know, it's so easy to make, oh, it furthers the investigation. And then in the case of wrong positions, well, what if you're investigating the wrong guy and just building a case around the wrong guy? Exactly. Um, Yeah, I I think the courts have always had a very interesting relationship with science. They can't really seem to figure out what they want to do with it. And to be fair, it's it's almost like a lesser of two evils uh, because you have or you have sort of this cycle where everyone wants them to use this science that's come out. Cause they're like, oh, this science is foolproof. It'll da, 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 da. it'll demonstrate this and that and that. And then, you know, time and time again, we see a lot of these sciences, particularly not to say the sciences themselves are invalid, but in their application to field of absolute certainty, such as the law, they don't really hold up or they have to be misrepresented in order to be effective almost. Yeah. In other cases, they often kind of just end up being circumstantial or they sort of serve more as yeah. exculpatory evidence, you know, to yeah, for sure. remove suspects as opposed to indict, if it's used properly, that yeah. is. But as we see with wrongful convictions, a lot of times it's more just used as the DNA is there, it has to be him. Yeah. And that sort of goes into... A broader thing. I like how you bring that up because um, in my forensics class currently, because I am still in school, 
we were talking about how shows like the CSI can influence law decisions, right? Because you see the way they conduct their sciences on the TV and you think, oh, that has to be based on real life, where they're not because, you know, it has to be good for television. It has to be something you would want to watch. And the way mm -hmm. forensics works in real life, you would not want to sit and watch a half an hour TV show on that because you'd be there for months. Yeah. And, you solved. know, in those shows, it has to end with them catching the bad guy. Exactly. So and the so forensic evidence sort of has has to be this yeah, smoking right. gun. Exactly. So my prof was telling us about a case in I think it was Missouri where this boyfriend like brutally stabbed his girlfriend to death and his DNA was on the knife and so was hers. But because there was a half-eaten burger nearby because he ate a burger after before or after murdering her, I'm not 100% sure, but like you do you, I guess. And he was hungry. Yeah, yeah, apparently, you know, just casually murder your girlfriend then you get hungry but only like half hungry. That's like a thing though. There's like so many instances of people committing crimes and then they just like eat food at the house. Yeah. Okay, let me finish my story first where I come on in. Jeez. No. And so the jury uh, acquitted him because the forensics people did not test the burger for his DNA, even though the knife was tested and he clearly murdered his girlfriend. But because of, you know, a bunch of them had watched CSI and in CSI they test everything. I was like, that, what does the burger have to do? Like, there's no blood on the burger. Like, come on, people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that one, honestly, hot take, kind of makes sense to me why they came to that decision. <laughs> Rory, what? <laughs> Well, it's about creating reasonable doubt. And, you know, if, if there's okay. a doubt that there's there was any evidence on this burger and it's established that, oh, well, he did this, then there should be DNA on his burger. And then the prosecution comes up and says, well, we don't really know. Then that's reasonable doubt. Okay, that's fair. So I can see how it happened. I think, obviously, with the existence yeah. of science, it's kind of dumb. And that's the other issue with forensic science is a lot of times we sort of have to, like, speed teach it to people like police officers who then yeah. don't really know how to do it. Yeah, and then really also we think they do, but don't. Yeah. But then we expect like lay people, you know, people from the world normal who have people. never normal people who have never, you know, like actually done forensic science in their life, maybe seen it on TV, to understand an expert witness who does this every single day of their life, right? Like mm -hmm. especially that's probably like in some areas where genetic genealogy could fall because in some contexts, like you watch the interview with the Toronto police of them talking about how they solved Christine's murder. Those guys have no idea what they're talking about in sense of the genetic genealogy part. Like they are literally talking out of their asses. Right. You watch the interview and they contradict themselves and then they go and say something and you're just like, who let you speak today? Like, it's like me in the mornings. Like literally, who let me speak this morning? Me for some reason. Apparently. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Any other comments, Rory? No, I think I'm good. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for listening today, everybody. Again, we are Kylie and Rory. We're part of the Wrongful Convictions Collective. You can find us on Instagram at Wrongful Convictions Collective, as well as the link tree in that bio, where you can find us at all our other places, including our wonderful blog. We hope you have an awesome day, and we will talk to you later.